David Auburn is a playwright, screenwriter, and director. His most recent play, The Adventures of Augie March, based on the Saul Bellow novel, enjoyed an acclaimed sold-out run in Chicago last spring. Other plays include Lost Lake and The Columnist. For proof, he won a Pulitzer Prize, Tony Award, and New York Drama Critics Circle Award. He wrote and directed the film The Girl in the Park. Other screenwriting credits include Georgetown and The Lake House. His direction for stage includes the classics Long Day's Journey Into Night, The Skin of Our Teeth, The Petrified Forest, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and many others. A former Guggenheim fellow, he lives in New York City. And I want, I want to talk about your current projects. You're working on Napoleon and some of the, you know, your best known play, uh, Proof and others. Um, but, you know, what do you, what do you make of, what, of everything that's going on at the moment? It's really hard to take in. It's hard to take in, and, and your, your reaction changes day by day. Sometimes mm -hmm. you feel like you're having a more or less normal day, at least if you're a writer. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the strange things about this is that, for me, is that, you know, my 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 day is, is spent in my apartment at my desk, so my my day-to-day -day patterns haven't changed that much. But then you're kind of confronted with what's happening outside and or, or the future of your industry, and it, and it seems overwhelming. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, we, you know, it, it's it's the the main thing that I feel right now is sort of heartbreak on behalf of New York City because it's suffering so badly and yeah. so many people are ill and and so many industries are stricken. Not least of which is my own industry, of theater business. I mean, we've never been through something like this before. We've never we've never had theaters close for months at a time, and and no one knows what it's going to look like. No one knows what what how we'll reopen theaters and then whether people will return and how quickly they'll return. So mm. all the uncertainty is scary. Yeah, and have you known um, people who have been, I, I know Terrence McNally passed and have you have been personally affected? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've known a number of people who have succumbed. I was mm -hmm. supposed to direct a production of Uncle Vanya this summer, which was canceled and one of the actors that we had cast in the play has has died oh. uh, an older actor um so you know uh, it's close i mean you want uh, it's 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 not a, it's not a distant threat at all yeah and it's it's just so strange and as you say for you it feels i think you know for actors who are you know all always you know it, it's always completely collaborative with them but um it, for you it can almost seem normal and you know, I, I can imagine as a writer, often you're just blocking out the world anyway, but it's nice to have that option to go out, even if you aren't using it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a luxury to have, you realize it's a luxury to have the option. So, yeah, but we're, you know, we're, we're managing and my, my children are staying in good spirits and my wife works at a museum, yes. which is obviously closed and they're mm -hmm. facing all the same kind of questions about how do you conduct public experiences when the public doesn't feel safe and, and probably won't feel safe for a long time. So it's very, it's very interesting time. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, just artistically, uh, to observe people, and I mean, it's almost like the definition of a drama, you know, sh shut people in indoors. I'm not being glib about it, but I just, you know, like the experimentation process, you know, what happens to people when they're deprived. Right. It's, it is, you know, you, yeah, it's, it's sort of a locked room mystery almost. You're putting yes. people under pressure and watching that, <clears throat> watching that, the dynamics play out. I mean, our family's sort of handling it pretty well so far, but um, it's got to be incredibly stressful for most people. Yeah, I think that artists who are sort of, uh, particularly writers, particularly uh, the you know the less collaborative or the more solitary artists, have kind of been preparing themselves for a long time. I mean, I'm a paint, I'm a painter. I also write a bit, and so I, I'm familiar with that. But for others, it's not something that they're in the habit of. But I mean, I didn't want to speak too much about that. But it just seems difficult to ignore it. And I no, I can't, can't not not mention it. Yeah, and I'm also very curious of the kind of dramas that will be to when we're ready to tell those stories. What will come out of this? Um, you know, 
about you know and and I and I think it's something to think about the future of intimacy and things like that as well yeah it's always interesting to see what the response to major kind of cultural events was and I remember you know after 9-11 especially in New York among the theater community there was this sort of everyone sort of said like where are the 9-11 plays and, and why isn't the theater responding to this immediately and and that tends not to be the way it works. I mean, I don't think that art responds to social trauma immediately. It's usually 10 years after or 20 years after or longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it usually doesn't a, isn't a direct, I think usually the, the most powerful responses aren't really direct responses either. Um, so it'll be interesting. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not certainly, when I return to the theater, I'm not going to be anxious to see plays about, about, social distancing i'm going to be eager to see almost anything else so yeah so uh yeah so so, you know going to uh, your plays and i know you're now working on a project for hbo as well napoleon but um are you were you looking at you're not looking at theme first you're starting from character or what how does it begin i mean it always begins differently but that's right it always begins differently but i think in general it be, usually begins with a problem. It begins with a, it begins with a person facing a dilemma, however large or small, and trying to work out on the page how you deal with that dilemma. So it's 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 a person in trouble in some sense, um, and and almost all the plays have come from that in in one way or another. And so it never for me at least it never really begins with theme or setting or even any larger ideas. In fact, the smaller the idea usually, the better mm. as, as a starting point. Right. You have space then for your imagination to bring it somewhere. Um, so I guess I think that a lot of people would know you perhaps best for proof. Um, so how, do, how did that begin? If you, I mean, if you like to speak about your process. That began with a number of different ideas. I had several ideas that I didn't know if they belonged in the same play or if they were different plays. But the main two that I was playing with at the time were the idea of a, of a, of a person who was um, turning, to, who, who on their birthday was, was approaching the age when they knew that their parent had begun suffering from mental illness and worrying that the same thing could happen to them that they could begin the same kind of descent that their parent had had experience at their age and just trying to imagine that person sitting sitting alone on their birthday and, and worrying about this and trying to understand what that could mean for them um, that was one idea the other was the idea of two sisters who found something left behind after a parent's death I didn't know what the thing was I didn't know if it was a an object or a piece of art or a piece of writing, a musical score, could have been all kinds of things. But in thinking through those two ideas, somehow they began to merge and the, and the play emerged out of the, out of the combination of those two situations. And are you, are you acting through as you, I mean, I don't know, because some people do that, as, as you're, um, as you're visualizing them or what helps you hear, make, hear your characters how you tune into them yes i am writing lines down and i'm saying them to myself and i'm reading sections of dialogue to myself and i'm pacing around the room and performing Mm. and my children are looking at me like i'm crazy and but i'm very actively kind of trying to hear and experience the flow of ideas through the lines as I write. Mm. Oh, I think I think that's so important. I know other people have a, like a more static way, but I think that, you know, even if writing, like even if novel writing, you know, which is even more sedentary, um, but remember that they're, it helps you remember that they're embodied figures and not, you know, just stuck in their head. Yes, and, and also actors are, of course, going to play the role, so... Yeah. The only way to sort of anticipate the the difficulties that they might experience or the challenges that they might experience is to try to perform the work a bit yourself so that you can 
you can recognize where are the logical leaps or the emotional leaps in the material. What are the questions the actors will have to be asking about their objectives and their intentions as they work through the material. And we should say, for those who haven't uh, seen Proof, although it's been widely performed and it's been interpreted in film, um, that it concerns um, also genius and the, the fragility of genius. And if you just describe a little bit uh, more for those who haven't seen. Yes, it's about, a, it's about the, the daughter of a famous mathematician who, whose career ended when he kind of succumbed to mental illness in his, in his 30s, and she both hopes and fears that she's inherited some of his talent and some of his... and, and that fears that she's, that she's also may have some of his instability in the bargain, so... And, and it's a, it's about the difficulty of knowing where you are on that spectrum, and if you if you're falling into the dangerous end of it, um, and and then she makes she you know she ultimately reveals that she has written an important piece of mathematical uh, work, a proof, and there's then the question arises about how much of this is her own work, or is she is she disguising the work of her father, and is she is this even aware of what she's doing? And all those kind of questions come up. And I can imagine too, um, yeah. If you have, if you feel that your genius is wedded to um, instability, that you, and it's a difficult decision because it, you're you're skirting. You, you don't want to go towards it then. Um, right. That, that's the dilemma for her. That she she can't embrace, or she feels for a long time in the play that she can't embrace her talent because of what it implies about her fate and um, and sort of decoupling the two things it becomes becomes the problem for her and, and ultimately the play is and her situation is resolved a bit at the end she can begin to sort of like chart her own path and accept that perhaps she's not as linked to her father as she has she has imagined all along yeah, yeah, we can we can learn, or we can find you know coping mechanisms at least because we've we've seen their example. And have you yourself have you known people who you know were touched by genius, but also you know madness or other instabilities? I think I've known both. I mean, I've I've known people who dealt with mental illness, and I've known very very bright people. Yeah. Also. Uh, and, um, I've, and I've certainly read about people who were on the cusp of both things mm-hmm. the way that Catherine is in the play. I don't have any first-hand experience with people like that, at least as far as I know. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's strange because when you think about um, either, you know, creativity in the arts or in math, which for me, I don't have that such a strong grounding. So it does seem, I, I can't make any sense of it, but you're, lis- you're hearing voices on the artistic level, which can be like madness or, I, I don't know, in the abstractions of math. It's To me, it just seems so theoretical and impossible to me. But um, you have That's to... That's my understanding as well. But I mean, I certainly can't understand it. But, I, mm-hmm. but you know, the thing that is so striking when you talk, talk to mathematicians or read about the work they're doing and their description of it is that it, it is that they always talk about it in aesthetic terms. I mean, mm. oh, that yes. comes up over and over that they're, they talk about it in the same terms that artists and writers and painters and poets do. That you know, they're looking for there are aesthetic qualities that they're seeking: simplicity and elegance and beauty and symmetry and, and all these things that that apparently, although I can't appreciate it firsthand, weigh very heavily in the in the way they think about what they're doing. Yeah, and you might be able to understand it from the point of view of you know rhythms and and uh, the math of writing. And often there's a, a music that they have a, also a musical ability uh, that seems sometimes to go hand in hand. Um, I think so. And, and I, you know, I, one one of the real triggers for the play was a quote I read by G. H. Hardy, the famous mathematician. I wish I had it in front of me, but I can't. I'd have to find it for you, but he, you know, he he spe- he says something about how in a, in a mathematical proof, you know, it combines it combines inevitability with surprise in a way that, um, in, in, you know, in, in, in exactly the way that you want a, you want a piece of drama to to combine that sense of um, 
of, ine- of in- inevitability and surprise. So exactly mm-hmm. the thing that you least expect is also the thing that, that in retrospect makes the most sense. It's beautiful. I, I, I want to learn more about that, but I have a feeling, well, actually I know quite, I have, I used to have a uh, mathematic ability because I was in math Olympics, but not anything great. But, um, but when I started moving towards the arts, I, I must have like a limited capacity. Like I could only like have room for the arts or for math because now my my mathematical abilities are next to zero. Um, so it's strange how we make space for the things that we love. Um, so speak a little bit about you know as you were finding your voice as you were um you know proof was set in the university of chicago where you went to school as well yes did you speak about you know how you were learning about um learning your craft and your teachers and your collaborators i didn't have any formal training as a dramatist i mm-hmm. started writing in i'd always done a lot of theater mm-hmm. i'd i'd acted in amateur productions and school productions and I had worked on doing technical work and design and worked as a stagehand professionally but um, I didn't do any writing until I got into review sketches in college kind of second city style or fringe style reviews and it was that kind of writing that both got me excited about writing for the theater and, and told me that I could do it a bit. That, or you know, and and I I found that the kinds of skills that you build when you're in order to write a three minute play apply very nicely when you begin to scale up into longer work. And so all of, all of the things that you discover when you're when you're writing sketches. How do I establish a situation? How do I establish a conflict? How do how do you delineate character? All those things are you know begin to form a nice little toolkit that you can use when you try to write longer work. Um, so it was just a process of doing that, and then gradually writing longer plays and putting them on with in small makeshift theater companies that I'd form with friends, trying to trying to produce work in in whatever venue we could in a very do-it-yourself way and gradually you know developing a, a, a set of theories about how how to do the work that is continually shifting and that you continually revise as you do more and more work and so yeah, I think it's great to think in the small level because I think everyone is always looking for this kind of big idea or often looking for this big idea and um, it needs to be put together. It's just a, s- a series of scenes, a series of lines, a series. And it's important to think on that humble level so that each line is believable, not just this whole big idea. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, you find over and over that when, when no matter how ambitious your play is, it, you end up asking the same questions about when you're in rehearsal and when you're writing about what are, you know, what, who is the protagonist of this play and what are they trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. What are they trying to accomplish in the, in the whole play? What are they trying to accomplish in each scene? What are they, in, in each, with each line, what is it that they're trying to achieve mm-hmm. when they speak? And, you, and you, you know, you ask those questions for each character in the play. And if you answer them well, you, you you have a play right and what did so that's what you got from you know, your background then acting I guess oh, and what other aspects were you did you were so important for you to carry over when you became a playwright you, you mean from from sort of be, beginning experiences yes yes um, I, th- I think the other sort of big thing that you start to think about is how is the audience or how is an audience taking in information and and what kinds of information do they need and in what order in order to in order for you to take them on the journey that you're trying to take them on and of course there isn't one answer to that but but hopefully there's a way to 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 learn to listen to what an audience is telling you in their reception of a play 
so that you can shape the experience you're giving to them in such a way that they're willing to go along with you. An example might be the question of what I think an audience wants to know very early on, for example, in a play or a scene, when they can go home. <laughs> if you know what I mean? You know that that most plays, most nearly all successful plays, no matter how abstract they are, no matter how oblique they are, in some way tell the audience what is at stake in the story very early on so that you have a set of expectations about what you are waiting to see happen. Um, figuring out how to do that and how to do it artfully and how to do it in a way that isn't obvious is tricky and it's a, it's a continual challenge with every piece, but every play does it in some way, I think, every successful play. Right, and then you spoke there about listening to the audience, and I imagine that it's hard to change the when once it's kind of fixed, and once you're going into you know more you know more than one production of it, if it has a long run. But if you're listening to the audiences, have you been you know changing the scripts, or how would you be changing the direction if you were getting feedback? You know, as it's performed in different places, sometimes different audiences respond in different ways culturally. Once, once the play is once the play has been produced and published, it's, I usually don't make. There's certainly I certainly don't make major changes. I, I sort of feel like, you know, the, the it's it's the cake is baked and it's you know and you can't you know you can't go back and and add another egg once once the thing is done. Um, uh, but certainly when the play is in is in rehearsals and to a lesser extent in previews, you learn a lot. From the way the audience is reacting to it, mm-hmm. and and you can make major changes based, you know, that based on your perception of, of of how they're reacting. So that it's very often the case that ideas that you thought that the audience would need a lot of a lot of information or exposition or just time to take in, they actually take in very quickly. And other things that you think are very obvious or glaringly, you know, obvious are slipping past people. And so that so that you continually need to readjust your calculations about, you know, how, how, how much emphasis to place on a particular idea or how much you can take away and still not lose anything and still not lose the audience's attention. Those kinds of those kinds of things become really interesting. The, the tricky part is that no one in the audience is telling, no one's saying explicitly, mm-hmm. "I think you should do X or Y or Z to keep my attention." People are tell people are you're hearing people respond and you're reading the sense of the room. So it's all kind of guesswork, but it's a very interesting and challenging kind of guesswork, which of course you're doing in collaboration with other smart people who can help you interpret what the audience is telling you. It's interesting because I interviewed Neil Patrick Harris, who of course was in a performance of uh, a production of Proof, and I was interesting. I hadn't realized the level to which you know actors might be making these calculations and comparing day to day. I mean, I thought they're they're aware of it, but I also thought, oh, they must be so absorbed in their character. But he was saying about adjusting his performance. Say it's a Wednesday night; they have to go to work tomorrow. I don't know, <laughs> and he's pacing it like that. And then it's a Saturday night; like they've come, you know, it's their weekend. And so I didn't, I didn't really realize at that level that a play would be changing from, you know, week, um, you know, weekday to weekend performance or those adjustments and how you. I Actors can't, will always tell you that. Yeah. They'll always say, "Oh, this is a Thursday night crowd." This is, I mean, act, it, actors like at least in the New York like Thursday nights. Mm-hmm. Thursday nights are usually people who are, <laughs> you know, they're 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 people who are out on. They really want to go to the theater on a Thursday night or a Wednesday yeah. night. To say it, they'll say that you know Saturday nights are terrible because those are the people who are in from out of town and have just had a big meal and then they get sleepy and you know it's more of a it's more of an obligation you know you, you hear these kinds of things and they, I think they also tend to be to be pretty true. Wow, so it's strange. I, I have to bear that in mind when I get tickets next time <laughs> of what it all means. I think Thursday nights are a really good night to go to the theater. I think that's the audiences are always pretty serious and committed on Thursday nights for whatever reason. 
That's interesting. And I, now I've forgotten the other question I was going to ask. You were speaking about changing and meters and reading the audience. Um, I guess I want to go back a little bit as you were, um, you know, uh, you know, learning your your. Um, uh, you were also at Juilliard, is that right? You were under Marshall yes. Norman and um, Norman and uh, Christopher Durang. And yes, they had started that program. I was I was there the first year that they began teaching. So it was a it was a brand new program, and um, they were they were they had just taken it over from. McNally and John Guare, who had run it for a year, um, and I was there with four, you know, three other writers. There were four of us. And what did they? I mean, uh, Durang is very different, and you, you know, you're all different artists. But um, what did you, what did he pass on, for instance? They were good. They were very complimentary to one another mm. as teachers. Marsha was awfully good on big picture stuff um, mm -hmm. sort of like general and kind of glo global perspective on how the audience was 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 apprehending your work I mean her the audience wants to know when they can go home was one of her maxims which I you know which I took on and really agreed with Chris was much more I would say pointillistic and, and almost almost never gave comments about the larger picture but was very very good on individual moments and especially lines where he or, or, or sections where he felt you were you know drifting from the main point of the scene or overcomplicating things so that was an they were, they were nice compliments to one another sort of big picture and small picture um critics of the, of the work but the, the, the other real thing that was striking about them was that we were never really made to feel like their students even though they were you know much more experienced than we were and had careers and fame and awards and all that sort of stuff the approach they took to the classroom was always we are all professionals writing here together and learning from one another and trying to figure out this profession together um, we're a little bit we've been doing this a little bit longer than you have but we are as interested in what you have to say about our work as as we are interested in helping you with yours so it was a very collegial kind of atmosphere and then what have you learned from in terms of from actors who performed your work if they're not collaborating on the writing process but how they deliver it or how uh, one actor has interpreted a role or taken over a role from another and you know you learned new layers of, about it through the multiple performances you, you learn everything from the actors I mean being in rehearsal with actors is immensely useful because and, and essential because they are the ones who have to figure out moment by moment what you know I, 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 I hate to keep reducing it to these sort of like ultra simple things but mm -hmm. what am I what am I doing? What, what am I trying to do? When I come into the room in this scene, an argument begins with this other character. When I walk into the room, do I intend for that argument to occur? Am I walking in hoping to avoid an argument? Am I walking in hoping think, with no idea that this is even a possibility that there could be an argument? You know, what what are my what is my understanding of what's happening in the moment I step foot into this room? And you know you don't always have to have the answers to those questions, and, there, and there's often more than one answer to to that question, and that's where interpretation comes in. But to understand that actors will be asking those questions, and for you to have thought carefully about about them is is essential. And 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 that's the process that good actors go through, and and listening to them, and listening, finding out where they get lost, or where they get confused, or where where it's impossible for them to make to make a strong choice. Is, is, is very clarifying for your writing because if you come to a place where it's, it's not so much that, that they don't know that, 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 that there are a number of possible choices that's fine it's when it's when for whatever reason you've built the thing in such a way that it's difficult for them to make a, a, a strong choice then you know you've done something wrong in the writing that you haven't given them the ability to un unlock whatever might be the possibilities of the scene 
And I'm thinking now, if we're talking about what you're presently working on, Napoleon, you know, um, I'd love to know what the what why why you were drawn to the subject matter what's it like adapting to um of course theater is a visual medium but you know television much more visual you know all these different constraints um what do you enjoy about that process what do you miss from the the world of theater well the napoleon comes out of a project that was begun by Stanley Kubrick in the late 60s or early oh, 70s. Yes. He wanted to make a Napoleon film. And it was never made, um, but all of his materials, his research materials and fragments of, of scripts and outlines are all extant in his house um, in St. Albans and outside of London. So I was hired to go through all that material and try to revive the project is, as a, as in the form of a six-hour miniseries probably for television as opposed to what he was going to make, which is a three-hour three film. Um, so I've had access to, all, to his thinking about it. The biggest, the, you know, apart from scope, which, which is, which is a, you know, paramount question, with, with, particularly with Napoleon, because I think of part of what attracted Kubrick to the project was the opportunity to make something on a scale which no one else had ever really attempted. Um, Apart from that, you have this, the question of his character, which is which is one of the toughest things I've ever <laughs> tackled and I'm really struggling with because you know there's, there's, Napoleon is is the most contradictory figure I've ever encountered in history. It's very hard to find two historians who agree on what kind of person he was. So so coming up with a an approach to his his character that encompasses all those contradictions and tries to make sense of him is is the big challenge for this and. Um, God knows how I'll end up solving it. What have you learned about him through the process? Well, I've learned, you know, I've learned a lot. I mean, the, you know, it's very hard to get a handle on the poem because unlike, I think, other major characters in history, there's more divergence in historical opinion on him than there is anyone else I've ever read about. I mean, I think, you know, there, there's broad agreement on, on the kind of person that someone like Lincoln was, for example. Mm -hmm. But not with Napoleon. I mean, you, there, there are good, there are good historians who regard him as just a kind of brigand or a kind of pirate, a kind of thug, and there are and there are good historians who regard him as a visionary and a, and a genius. So, um, so the the range of opinion is really daunting. Uh, I think you know the. The two things that I've that seem really important to me, at least right now, is that I'm only about halfway through this. Are that one was that he genuinely was a genius. That he was he was um, extraordinarily capable in 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 you know in in many uh, walks of life, and was and had and had truly astonishing set of of skills, uh, strategic skills, he had an extraordinary memory, he was, he was, he had the literary gift, he was philosophical, he had, you know, he, he was a genius. Mm -hmm. So it's always hard to write about a genius. The other thing about Napoleon, I think, was that he was wildly, he was perhaps the most opportunistic person who's ever lived, but he, you mm -hmm. know, he had, he had convictions uh, uh, all throughout his career, but but they were continually shifting, and he was capable of um, sublimating his convictions to his ambition to a, to a degree that, that also was almost unique in history. So I think you know dealing with those two poles, you know, a genius who is also a, a supreme opportunist, you know, gives you a very a very tricky character to sort of handle. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure what else to say about it at this point. Well, I now I want to separate those two, <laughs> those two descriptions, genius and opportunist, because I don't want to make the comparison. But people, when they watch, um, you know, uh, historical dramas, always do make a kind of comparison between you know contemporary or uh, recent leaders. And I suppose what have what has the reflection on the character of Napoleon? made you think about some of our current or recent leaders or understand there, perhaps there, their situation in a different way i mean you, you know it's always it's always tempting to compare to compare tyrants to, mm -hmm. to, or would-be tyrants to, 
at various points in history to one another. But there, Napoleon resists comparison to nearly yeah. any anyone who's ever lived. I mean, he really was so extraordinary. Um, I think it's, you know, I, I, I don't know that there's a useful comparison to be made, for example, between Napoleon and Trump. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, I, do, I didn't want to make that either, but maybe um, about power or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what does seem striking about Napoleon is the extent to which he was driven by an insecurity. Um, not insecurity in the sense of a lack of confidence in his own abilities, because he had, God knows he had that to an incredible degree, but insecurity about the, the sources of his, the, the sources of his authority and, and the sources of his legitimacy. I think, I think his whole career was a struggle with the, the reality that he he came from essentially nothing. I mean, he came from, he came from this sort of very minor nobility in Corsica, but in the eyes of the rest of Europe, there was no foundation to his. There's no legitimacy behind his power except for his military prowess. So, so part of what kept him driving on and on and ultimately sort of doomed him was that was the need to continually shore up his legitimacy and in the eyes of the world with military victory after military victory. And at some point that was just not sustainable. So, so, you know, the ability of insecurity to, to drive even an extraordinarily capable and confident person is, is striking. And I want to speak also about, uh, of course, you had uh, film adaptations and you worked on scripts and then you had, uh, you then had your first uh, film uh, directing experience, I, I think, with the, the girl in the park. And what was that like, you know, um, t or unless you've done another uh, film before then, I wasn't sure. But, uh, that's, the only film I've, that's the only film I've directed. Mm -hmm. And what was that um, like then adapting to? It was, I loved doing it um, as a creative experience directing a movie is, is totally unlike directing a play I thought that I, since I've directed plays I would be prepared for film directing but I, I wasn't um, about you know about 95% of what you do as a film director is sort of work out logistical problems you know you're, 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 you, you spend almost all of your time trying to figure out how do you get shot what you need to be shot given ex you know the extreme limitations of time and money that you're working with hmm. so you're just continually sort of making judgments about do I spend you know do I do I do I do another setup on this scene so that I have more options in the editing room or do I forego one of the camera setups so that I can get more quickly to the next scene and possibly have a little more time you know and those ultimately are artistic decisions but they're also logistical ones I thought of as being directing, which is you know working with the actors and thinking about actors' intentions and what they're doing. That ends up being a kind of tiny fraction of what you do as a film director. You spend, you do, you do that. You, you know, you sort of squeeze that in when, you know, when in between everything else. Um, but that said, it's a fascinating giant puzzle that you're solving every day on a film set, and I, I really enjoyed it. And I meant to ask, what you're doing now with HBO, is that episodic or is that a, a, a HBO film, a short? I think you mentioned it was a... I was just it wondering. will be a six-episode series, limited series. All right. So, and then I just wanted to ask, what's it like then um, do, doing more episodic work? And so... Well, this is something that's new for me, and I'm, I'm just trying to figure it out. I mean, you know, I have, I worked out an outline of everything that's going to be in the in the series but even as and even as I'm only, only getting into the third episode you realize oh this this bit belongs this this thing I had in episode two really belongs in episode three and this needs to be rebalanced and this is actually this is the story that we're telling in this episode not this other story so you learn a lot as you go I, I imagine I'll keep keep figuring out all the way to the end. I mean, I, I have no idea if the, thing that, if the six episodes that we arrive at at the end will resemble the, the ones that I planned from the beginning, but 
so it's an ongoing sort of process of discovery. Yeah, I'm very curious about it, having friends who are like showrunners and things that, you know, how that works because you, okay, so you, if you have a long running series and you have to keep on finding problems and then you don't know, you have to give a kind of sort of satisfying ending at the end of the series and then you don't know if you have to accordion it out. To, I mean, I just don't understand that. You, you have to make it satisfying and then maybe something else could happen. I don't know. Is that a reason why? I don't why? understand it either. Yeah. I think it must be really hard. I mean, I know that some shows have had a plan from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you read about Breaking Bad, for example, that they, yeah. you know, they, they knew where they, they knew roughly where they were going from the top. And others, others, you can feel that effort that they have to sort of sustain and continually like generate new sources of plot. And sometimes that doesn't work so well. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I think it's it's to some extent it's trial and error for everyone. We're all sort of just like making the best guesses we can at any moment about what what will work and what will be interesting. And then and then if they don't, if it doesn't work out the way you plan, to try to to frost your mistakes as best you can. Right. Yes, I was wondering that if that's why you hadn't um, pursued television because you feel like you like a sing prefer a single arc in general, or you where you know that it's general shape and you, it's not a, it's not continually being adapted. I, I I'm not sure that's the reason I haven't done it, but I it, it, that is what I do love about a good play. I mm -hmm. feel I feel that you know at the end of a good play you should know everything you need to know about these people, and there's no need for a sequel. Mm -hmm. To a streetcar named Desire, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't need to, you don't need to know what happens. We know what, we know what's going to happen to Blanche at the, and Stanley and still at the end of that play, and so that, you know, and and that's that's the beauty of that form, the com the compactness, um, where you you are you are giving it's a just a glimpse of these people's lives, but it's it's the glimpse, it's 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 the window into their lives that should that tells you everything you need to know about these people. That's a that's a that's a beautiful thing to strive for. Mm. And also, you've done a number of like one act or shorter um, plays. Is that how you test out whether you see if this uh, a play can be, you know, a three act or a more um, a, a more um, traditional play? Or, or is that are you always trying that? Because you were speaking at the beginning about you know compressed pieces. No, it's a totally different form. I think it's. And a, and a short, I love writing short plays, and I love the economy of them and the perfectibility of them. I think you can write a, I think you can ever kind of write a perfect 10 or 15 minute play in the way that you can't really write a, a perfect one act play, mm -hmm. uh, a, a perfect full length play. Mm -hmm. But um, no, no, I, I think it's almost always the case that if you write a really good short play, it's impossible to expand it for the same reason that I mentioned before, that you've, you know, you've you've sort of compressed everything into the into the form that it needs to take, and you've given the audience everything they need to know about those people in that situation, and there's nothing else to say. Um, and that's a really that's a very satisfying feeling. So I do think it's more like you know it's more like it's kinder short story as opposed to a novel. Um, most most you know the great short stories you don't want them to be novels. You're, they're they're perfect the way they are. Right. And then speaking about some of the other um, historic figures you've been drawn to or subject matter, like I'm thinking of the, the columnists, what drew you to that? I was fascinated by, well, I was by the contradictions in that figure, you know, who he was a relatively obscure figure, but he seemed like a really important one and a really exemplary one in the sense that here was, a, here was someone who in a very short period of time went from being went from having one set of political views to to one rather you know rather rather liberal and and small d democratic set of views to to very reactionary um, and and it just it seemed like a perfect life through which to explore the question how does that happen how does that happen to someone how do they understand what did, and what do they understand to be happening to them do they do they feel that they're changing or do they feel that they're the same and, and the world is changing how, and how do they justify themselves? So, I was really excited when I started learning about also. I just felt like this was the perfect, the perfect figure, not a you know not a not a major world historical figure, but you know uh, uh, an influential figure of his time who in his in his person encompassed a lot of what was happening in America personally, and who suffered a great deal of pain because of what 
the changes that he underwent in a very tumultuous time. So I was just very excited by the possibilities that that offered. Yeah, I hadn't known about Joseph Alsop, um, and and I don't know how 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 you had come across his life or. I mean, do you generally do you go you know research historical figures or, I mean, how did you come across it? I think I read a book review that mentioned him, and then and I was and I was reading a lot at the time about the Vietnam War because it was something I just didn't know very much about. And I was trying to educate myself a bit, and this and he and his brother Stuart, these kind of zealot like figures that keep popping up as you know as minor but important figures in in the in the debate in America over Vietnam. So that's really interesting find someone like that you just find this this person who was sort of everywhere and knew everyone mm -hmm. but is largely forgotten now and that got me interested in him mm. and then because I think he was a writer and his brother was a writer and a journalist there was just a lot of material I mean they both wrote memoirs people wrote memoirs about them and there was all of their there was all of their own work so it was a good you know you could find there was a lot of meat or you could find a lot to to, to use in a play. Right. And it's always interesting, yeah, when you can find a figure who's like a witness to history. Um, I'm wondering, since yeah. you began um, writing, since you began, you know, f since you fell in love with theatre, um, you mentioned that, I mean, you're doing now something for HBO. Um, are we really, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, inter the internet has become, you know, uh, has developed and changed and television and film has changed our attention spans. Um, what, what kind of changes have you found since you started? You know, what, um, you said that you, maybe audiences, sometimes you didn't need to explain things at length or, you know, how are you adapting to that? As you said, the audiences have different needs or expectations. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I think that there's a there's an appetite that at, you know as more as we live our lives more and more online and in, in small fragments, I, I feel that there's that there's an appetite for the antidote to that when you go to the theater. Yeah. In, in very often, I think you know there there are people are at least lots of people are drawn to long experiences you know mm -hmm. that require sustained attention, sometimes over a couple of nights. And uh, I'm always struck by what kind of appetite there is for that. Mm -hmm. You know, shows that sh shows that are are epic in scale and that require people to sort of leave their put their lives on hold for for a, a long evening or an afternoon and an evening to 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 enjoy. Um, I, I, I did this play, The Adventures of Augie March, which is you know based on a really long novel, and the play was pretty long. It's about three and a half hours long, and I was always worried about asking people to spend that much time but I think that ended up being one of the things that people really liked about it mm. people like you know people like the, the two-part Harry Potter play on Broadway you know people like people like um, all-day experiences and I, I think I think the, the more the theater can kind of help you differentiate yourself from from the, the from the rhythms of everyday online life the more valuable it is, the more people treasure it. And some people are drawn to, you know, elaborate stagings. Um, I, I mean, I enjoy that when it's when it when it's appropriate. But uh, I, yes, I enjoy that intimacy that you just you can only get in the theater, and you know it's not going to be performed again the way you saw it. And it's almost as though the actors are speaking to you, and you're all in one room, and uh, almost I, I like almost. Like an, an, a, um, an artistic staging, but almost one where I have so much space for my own imagination. Yeah, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, it's easy to sort of be gushy about it, but it, it, it is a remarkable experience that, you know, you go, you go into a room with a couple of hundred or thousand strangers mm -hmm. and then everybody collectively agrees to kind of play this game where you agree for a few hours to pretend that the people on the stage are not the people on the stage and, and that you're all inhabiting this other world and that and that and that you all sort of tacitly agree to behave in a certain set of ways for a certain period of time. Um, it's it's a it's a highly civilized act. 
know, it's a high, it's a highly strange <laughs> sort of thing mm-hmm. to do. It's very, and when it works, it's, it's it's more exhilarating than I think any other experience. Yeah, it's kind of a magic trick, and I I do love I do love the generosity of theater audiences. What you can say, say if you were doing the Napoleon as a play, you know, where yeah, you'd have a nice set, but you would be basically yeah. Let's imagine we're all t- we're all in France now. <laughs> just suddenly we're yes. we're swept there, and they'll say, "Oh yes," <laughs> and, then, and they're so generous about that. They don't need a lot of proofs, you know. No, they're they're eager for it. Yeah, and that's that's beautiful. I think it really takes us back to um, a sense of our very earliest experiences of storytelling. You know, maybe when a, a parent was sitting on our bed and, and telling us a story, and um, you really only needed that suggestion, you know, and uh, we were there. No, that's right. I mean, I, and I and I think it is it is as you say, it's no accident that often the most even the most powerful theatrical experiences are are effects that are done very simply and not and not done in a in a, in a literal. Or, I think it, you know the, the more and more attempts lately to incorporate video on stage have met mm-hmm. with a kind of backlash. And I think it's it's an interesting it's an interesting backlash. Not not just that people don't want to look at screens mm-hmm. when they go to the theater because that's one of the reasons trying to get away from the screens but it's mm-hmm. that it's that you don't want you don't want the sort of like literal photographic um representation on stage you 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 want you want you want something else you want you want something that forces you to participate more and, mm-hmm. um yeah i've just been i've just been struck by that in the last several years i think several made big attempts to use to make big use of video in in big productions has met with a kind of indifference or backlash yes yeah it's like flattens it again what was supposed to be really in three dimensions um so i mean i want to thank you you've been spending so time but i do want to get to some of our questions uh, about education at the end but i don't want to be taking up your time because i know you've you have to go back to napoleon (laughs) (laughs) he is waiting for you (laughs) yes and you don't he doesn't like to be kept waiting but um you know yes because we're you know an educational initiative and uh, also you wrote you wrote up a series of um short pieces uh what what do you think about the future what do i no sorry i don't know the, uh, the exact name. oh that's an old play yeah. yes what do you believe about the future so i have some questions about the future um i guess as you you know reflect on what's happening now um everything that um uh, the education the future and the kind of world we're living leaving the next generation uh what do you feel is the importance of theater and um how can we incorporate that more in our, our current, you know, educational systems? In this sense, those are tough questions to answer. I'm not mm-hmm. very good at that kind of thing. Um, I don't, I don't know how to, how to answer that except to say that you know that everyone, kids, kid, every kid can do theater. Every kid mm-hmm. can write a play. Every kid can pretend mm-hmm. and act, and it's and it's enormously liberating. I think, and usually, you know, when when you have a classroom experience where you're teaching. Uh, high school students or younger students and you're encouraging them to write a play or to put on a play it breaks down people's social you know this the social roles that they usually inhabit and the and the sort of social habits that they fall into it, it breaks them down more quickly and more easily than I think any other activity certainly more than sports does yeah um, so there's so that's when I lose yeah, it, I mean, and you know, pe- people who are who are in a kind of shell suddenly burst out of it, and people who are who are um, in- inhibited in certain ways suddenly find means of expression, and, and people who are used to being dominant suddenly find other ways to to communicate with you know their peers. So it, it, it's a it's a remarkably liberating and leveling activity. Um, and I think nearly everyone who does it benefits in some way from it, even if they're not interested in doing it professionally or even, you know, particularly seriously. So it's a very joyful kind of play that is socially very freeing. And I'm not sure what else to say about it. I mean, it would, it would be my hope that all that all children could participate in theater in some in some ways when they're in school. Um, right, at a young at a younger age, so that they. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I think that definitely, in terms of acts of imagination, certainly do help us 
with uh, empathy and, and listening to other people so with all those perspectives can help us as we kind of try to navigate this uncertain future definitely yes and for you you know personally what you know for all your years telling stories um what have the arts given you and what would you like young people to know um preserve and remember wow these are heavy questions I'm sorry, I should have, I thought I'd sent them to you this last time. No, 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 it's, I'm, I'm glad to think about it, because I, I usually don't think in those terms. I, mm-hmm. I, I tend to sort of like, just look at what's directly in front of me, but mm-hmm. it's useful to take a step back. Well, I think, you know, the, the big, I think the big thing that writing for the theater has given me is the, is the awareness that, you know, it's, it's possible to inhabit another person's subjectivity fully enough to, you know, to, to give voice to a set of experiences that aren't your own, and that and that you and that it's you know and that you can you can do that in a way that that gives gives solace and and interests people who are who you know who don't who don't know how much you're faking it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and and there's sort of endless reassurance in that that like mm-hmm. that, that we all have. Or, or hopefully we all have to some extent a capacity to imagine ourselves into the lives of other people and, and to and to express that in a in a way that is that is useful and meaningful we're, we're not all totally locked into our own subjectivities it's possible to escape from it it's possible to step outside of it um and that's what writers and actors do for sure so i don't know i'm just sort of formulating this as i speak to you but that that seems important to me somehow um that 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 we're all capable of those kinds of acts of imagination that can bring us closer to the subjectivity of other people. Yes. No. I think I think that that's good. I think it's important. And I I always remember that well with great humility. And he was on the record saying many times, like Marlon Brando, that we're all actors. Of course, we're not all paid for it. But like in some ways, the the everyday actors who aren't paid for it are playing larger stakes. You know. Um, but they don't. Yes. They don't think what about you do, it. I mean, yeah. he, you do it as an audience member too. I mean, yeah. you know, you you don't you go to a play to, and if your identification with a character hopefully isn't isn't limited to the extent to which you see your own problems reflected in what they're doing. You 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 hopefully you you experience a broader perspective based on. The, the, hopefully, they they're they're drawing the character is drawing you into their subjectivity as well as the other way around. That seems really that seems really important the, the, because most of the time we're we are all locked into our own very limited sense of you know obligations and grievances and insecurities. Um, getting dragged out of that by whatever means necessary seems really useful. Yeah, and if one I think if one thing that we might reflect on positively is I've never seen such you know outpouring of respect for uh, not just the doctors and nurses now but just even the people um stocking groceries you know or delivery i mean i hadn't you know people that weren't i don't know given the most respect in our society which is often you know based on money and that kind of who but um so that's been nice to see um i hope that yeah, that doesn't the essential go away. worker exactly i yeah, hope we, that, that we doesn't... really see who's essential yeah, and you don't. Yeah, you don't think about it. Oh, it's just, just eating. It's just who brings my food, and I don't look at them. You know. Right. Um, right. No, I, I, that's very true. Mm-hmm. So the, are, the, are grocery stores open? I mean, what is open in Paris? Everything's really closed. Just groceries, and you have to. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy because here, just on a daily note, and I think this is the case in in New York more so than other cities, is that we don't really uh, we shop every day. And we don't. Sure. That's the the system is designed to be that way. <laughs> you shop every day, and so, so that's kind of a strange. And I know in America it's more like there's Costco's and all these things where you can. Maybe it's well, designed for like, New York life. is a bit like that. Yeah, it's, it's a bit like sort of an everyday shopping city too, which mm-hmm. is. And do you have to wear masks? Um, I mean, I'm wearing a mask. It's I've noticed that others aren't, but there's a distancing, you know, that we have to maintain. And 
so it's strange. Uh, Paris is, uh, I mean, and I know that in New York as well, I have family there. I mean, I, I was always going back and forth. So um, it, I know it's a, it's a city of drama and it's voluble and it's just so strange. And in Paris too, we're, I, we think of ourselves as a sensual city and, and these pleasures and these intimacies are, I don't oh, think yeah. we know what to do with themselves. I see people taking risks too, like they can't, they're not, they, they just can't take it anymore. Um, no, you, you, you're dying to, I mean, yeah. I'm dying to sit, sit in a coffee shop or, or you know, order, order a meal at a restaurant. I mean, you just, you just miss that. Yeah, it's so much, you just don't realize it. Um, I guess other American cities are a little bit more designed for bubbles or maybe Los Angeles or something. Like, it's more bubbles that people told me about. Right, right. Yeah, there. But, um, yeah, we all, we all miss it. So I, I think that it's... It's something, I mean, I think I have a, a big hopes for, like, it will make people appreciate the live theater, you know, when we have that chance, when we can feel safe, then we'll know, wow, I, we, you know, we know what it's like to be sequestered. Yeah, I think it's going to be really exhilarating the first, mm -hmm. the first few times that we can return to some of these public events. It's going to, it's going to be a celebration because people value it so much and have missed it so much. And I should also say, and I do believe this as well, that the artists are also the essential workers because what are we all doing now when we're in isolation? We're turning towards the arts as a basicness, as a basic need. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, very much so. So there. Are, so now I don't. I don't want to hear from any people who are saying no to funding to the arts. Or no. It's like, how do you think you kept your sanity <laughs> during all of this? <laughs> so I, I do believe that. But, but perhaps we, we. I just want to thank you, David Auburn. Um, thank you for, for all your insights, for your stories of outsiders and genius and its fragility, the the creative process of your characters and finding grace and connection amidst, amidst conflict and your readings between the lines to present untold stories. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you for, thank you for having me. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Alana Klein. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Winter Time was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. If you want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews, email us at team at creativeprocess.info.